Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast itself, and lay some of the foundation for more of the issues that we're going to discuss throughout the various episodes. And if you're not new to the podcast, and you're finding it enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review or a plug on social media. As well, you can now help support the podcast more directly. For the price of a latte, you can help defray some of the costs of editing by making a small donation via PayPal on the podcast website at jibjabpodcast.com, where, of course, you can also find the links to all of the materials discussed in all of the episodes, including links to the growing list of great reading recommendations that have been made throughout the program. Our guest today is Professor Samuel Moyne, who is both a professor of jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He's written a number of books on issues at the intersection of history and international human rights, and he has most recently published the book we are going to discuss here today, entitled Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. As many listeners will know, it's a provocative book, and it has received a lot of attention in terms of reviews in both academic and broader publications and discussion and debate in the blogosphere and elsewhere. For those of you who have read the book, you'll know that it is very rich and that there is a lot to discuss. But I do think we managed to get our arms around a lot of the more important issues in our conversation. While we begin with a thumbnail sketch of the overall argument the book makes, we leave the debate over its central thesis until the end. From the initial overview, we move to explore some of the premises of his argument, discussing some of the critiques of his account of the early insignificance of IHL and his claim that American war has become more humane in the last few decades, and whether the constraints on the resort to war have declined and been undermined, even as war has become more humanized. And then towards the end, we dig into some of the bigger questions regarding the nature and evidence of this putative inverse relationship between the focus on humanizing war and the concern for limiting the resort to war itself, and other implications of this humanizing of armed conflict, and who the central characters and forces are in this account of both the humanization of war and the declining constraints on waging war, including what the role of lawyers has been and should be in the process of constraining the incidents of armed conflict. The book itself is a real pleasure to read, and it's both rich and provocative. And indeed, as will be apparent from our discussion, I disagreed with some aspects of the book, but it provided lots of food for thought. And I will say that I actually think I developed a better understanding of some of the nuances of Sam's argument through our discussion here. So even if you've read the book with care, I think you will find our discussion illuminating. And if you haven't read it yet, well, I think you'll want to read it after listening to this. Our conversation was over a week ago when the Russian invasion of Ukraine had not yet started. But as I record this today, the world is witnessing yet another act of aggression, another tragedy of war. And Sam's claim that there has been insufficient focus on the prohibition against the resort to war is that much more important. With that, I bring you Sam Moyne. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for, for making time for this. What a privilege. I'm a fanboy and it's a privilege to be you know, part of it. Well, thank you very much. But as you know, before I dive into the substance, I've been asking guests to share something about themselves that not everybody might know, including some of your colleagues back in New Haven, or I think you're currently over at Oxford. Is that right? Well, I've told a lot of people here, but I don't think it's widely known uh, in New Haven or elsewhere that I'm preparing to go to the Himalayas. I'm turning 50 on Monday. 
And after I finish my obligations here, I have free time. So my brother-in-law has invited me to accompany him on a month-long trek. So wow! Any anything that transpires on Twitter in April, I will miss. <laughs> well, that sounds really exciting. So uh, you'll have to fill us all in when you get back on, on the adventures. If I get back. <laughs> Well, We're not summiting, so it's not that dangerous, but you know, anything could happen. Anything could happen, but well, that, that sounds exciting. So we're here to talk about your already very famous book, Humane, which just came out last year and was actually recommended on the podcast here before it was even published. And as Adil Haq has been making hay of on Twitter, it is one of the most reviewed and acclaimed books uh, on war for some time. So first of all, congratulations for that. Thanks. I, you know, let's not blow it out of proportion as a deal, you know, <laughs> does as a joke. It, it got some reviews, positive and negative. And it's, it's ha it had a, a, you know, a, a, an interesting run. Let's put it that way. Wow. And there's so much to talk about. We're going to have a hard time getting our arms around everything there is to talk about in the short time that we have. But I thought before we dive into the weeds, for the very few listeners out there that haven't got a sense of what the overall argument is from the reviews and everything else that's been going on in the blogosphere, why don't we start with you just explaining what the overarching argument is, and then we'll sort of unpack some of it. On one level, it's an attempt to tell a history of, of the modern international law around war, and especially to look at the relation between the histories of use ad bellum norms on the one hand and use in bellow norms on the other and to you know hypothesize that there can be interactions between these regimes and and then in, on another level it's a, a book about the war on terror and the origins of what i see as a syndrome of humane legitimation maybe facilitation of an endless war, partly through activist focus, partly through kind of how politicians thought and talked about the war and their lawyers in tow. And so we'll get into some of the details, but there's an argument about a risk in making war humane under law or otherwise, and that we've incurred that risk in our time. Right. And so, so yes, I think we'll come back to unpack that core claim that there's somehow this inverse relationship between humanizing war and somehow thereby undermining the constraints on the going to war itself, which I'm sure we'll have lots to, to debate about there. But before we get into that, I think some of the premises of that claim, as you say, the history of the evolution of IHL, the history of the evolution of Yusad Bellum have been challenged by some of the reviews. And, and so I thought we would interrogate some of those. But before we even get to that, I did want to ask about the first couple of chapters. There's this very rich account of the writing and activism of such figures as Leo Tolstoy and Bertha von Suttner, as well as the legal work of lawyers such as uh, Quincy Wright. So maybe we could begin just with how you think those accounts of the early peace movement relate to the development of your central argument and you know, how you got into that history. Well, so it, it made sense to me to begin my story with the mid-19th century, since that's when the first Geneva Convention is negotiated and, and ratified in 1864. And it amazed me that it appears that Leo Tolstoy references it in War and Peace, and indeed has one of his famous characters denounce its project. Right. And as I did research, I was struck by how there was a much more open debate about 
the plausibility of making war more humane before it was actually made more humane under law. And though, you know, hypothetical or speculative, that debate seemed to me worth reconstructing. And, you know, then I also wanted to show that um, far from being a phenomenon of the interwar period and after that, the campaign to constrain the resort to force has, you know, earlier roots in in modern history. And indeed, it was in light of that imperative that these worries about humanizing war have their roots. And so showing how the quest to control force kind of wended its way through a modern history before, say, the Kellogg-Briand Pact or the United Nations Charter was of importance to me while showing both worries about use and bellow control and really how peripheral that was relative to USAD Bellum control. So we'll, we'll come back to the Kellogg-Briand Pact and, and the USAD Bellum, but in, in starting to unpack some of the premises and some of the challenges, I guess, that right. you know, the book has confronted, one of the premises obviously is this idea that up until very recently, until the post-Vietnam era, the laws of war didn't really matter very much. And in fact, there weren't really laws of war to speak of. And I think some critics would say that overstates or, you know, and tends to trivialize the development of IHL, although you engage in a, a you know, a, a fairly meticulous history and account of the development of IHL, you tend right. to discount its significance. And I think the argument would be made that it exaggerates the lack of purchase that law has as part of the, you know, the development of the central argument. So why don't we unpack that a bit? Sure. So, so there's one, let's call it red herring, and then there's one kind of genuine debate and good faith and incredibly important. So I just want to be clear. I am not, I've never claimed or said that there was no constraint on war prior to 1864. That would be <laughs> insane. And indeed, we see rules that can be thought of as use and bellow rules all the way back to the oldest documents of civilization, right. like Deuteronomy. I do claim that the specific imperative of reducing suffering in war is modern. It has some Christian roots. The Swiss were a particular kind of modern Christian that is, is engaging in a kind of reform based on kind of universalistic or pseudo-universalistic compassion. And the question is, how common was that? You know, when did it originate in the first place? And above all, how much impact does it have on the laws of war, which I prefer to call the laws of war, since it's very important that this domain was only branded international humanitarian law in the 1960s and 1970s. So it's true that I push very hard on the notion that there's not a lot of humanity after 1864 for a very long time in the content of the laws of war. And then, you know, there's not just our, our familiar failures of application, let alone enforcement, but I also lean very hard on the suggestion that the, the laws of war were racialized in, in many conflicts. And so in a sense, what humanity there was applied within white fighting and Christian fighting, not global fighting. Now, I, I concede that there are some early counterexamples to this claim, partly because I'm trying to get at how we um, end up with humanized drone warfare. 
I, I try to show a special interest in the regulation of aerial bombardment. And I try to make as credible a claim as I can that the humane regulation of that practice is extraordinarily late. However, I think it would, would be fair for those who want to push back. I don't think this has actually happened yet. I assume it will in scholarly reviews to focus on detention and pr imprisonment norms. And there I would absolutely concede that there, and I think I do in passing in the book, concede that there's some humanization of those kinds of practices without defining the, the overall drift of the laws of war. The trouble there is that you know, that humanization of the laws of war for the sake of, of prisoners is, after all, the predicate in the period of the war on terror for moving to the kind of humane syndrome from the air above all that I'm trying to portray. And so I guess, you know, to, to get to a bottom line, I want to suggest that it's striking how new the humanization agenda in the laws of war is in practice. We can dispute here and there you know, what exactly the antecedents were and in which domains of the conduct of hostilities. Right. And I think that, so I think that there's one sentence that has appeared in a number of reviews, which I think right. you, you write that before the humbly titled additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, one could say with only a bit of exaggeration that there were no laws of war, humane or not. And John Fabian Witt and others right. have sort of said, wait a minute, <clears throat> surely that's not right. So, so just that, again, that would be crazy unless you focus on the word war as in actual fighting, because clearly rules about detention and occupation are there pretty, you know, pretty earlier and there are all kinds of other constraints. But at the heart of killing soldiers or even civilians, what constraints are there? And it's hard to find many. To be, you know, to be honest. So that's the claim, and that's to me why the principles of distinction and proportionality are so revolutionary, because they affect the actual infliction of death on combatants and civilians. But I, I think surely advocates for the ICRC and for the Geneva Conventions would argue that the principles of distinction and proportionality existed before the additional protocols. They may not have been as explicitly articulated in the black letter of the conventions as they came to be in the additional protocols, but they were there and they were even operationalized. And that's, I think, one of the things that people reading your account, where it seems to suggest that really these principles only materialized in the late 1970s with the additional protocols, right. my bridal. Yeah, I would concede that on a little bit, at least on uh, the distinction principle. It, it is really important. And, and at the end, I'll cite someone who you know, influenced me on this very point, that it's only in, on paper recently. I think the proportionality expectation is not deeply rooted. And above all, in the context of air war, it's really not applicable uh, it, it doesn't cross anyone's minds. And so are there s deeper sources in, in moral philosophy? Potentially. But I think that the case there is very strong. If I were arguing against myself, I would um, point to the exclusion of certain targets, which are on paper long before the, the additional protocols. And that those have to do with, those restrictions have to do with potentially killing. And that, that would be, I, I would argue, a stronger way to go if you wanted to you know, restore a kind of deeper lineage to the humanization of hu humanitarian law, as my teacher 
Ted Marone famously called it. Right. So I guess on the flip side of this, some people, I think, took exception to the other part of this claim that somehow in the post-Vietnam era, and particularly after 9-11, war and particularly American conduct of war became so humane and sanitized. And I think to be fair to, to the book, towards the end, you yourself question some aspects of that claim and suggest that the harm may have be different, but the harm is nonetheless real. But even the more superficial suggestion that while the war has become really humane in the post 9-11 era, and you point out that, you know, yes, thousands of civilians have died, but that's far less than the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that have died in previous conflicts. Some might argue that's just because the leaving Iraq aside, the conflicts have been far more limited and that when you sort of look at the civilian deaths as a proportion and the civilian suffering as a proportion of the, the military operations, it doesn't look all that humane, actually. And so what are your thoughts on that? You know, this is the challenge that I want because I, in part there's, you know, what motivates the book is this worry that a traditional focus on violation ha has had its limits precisely if you want to contain violation. And so I'm interested in a sense highlighting what happens if you're a humanitarian and you get your way and you achieve a kind of emergent culture of compliance with international humanitarian law that legitimates endless war. So I, of course, for, for effect, I've, I obviously use the phrase humane war, but all that's really at stake on a continuum is the claim that war has becomes more humane when there's some kind of emergent culture of compliance. When first the law, you know, is in content more humane, when the exclusion of racialized and religious others is contained so that they're covered by the law. And above all, when great powers incorporate the law and in particular, the role of lawyers in their operations. Now, obviously, it makes sense, both from a legal and other perspective, to decry the shortcoming, the, the failures to get all the way, right. whatever that might mean. What's clearly at stake is not saying, you know, we're all the way. But I, I do want to stress that this is a book about how, if we have any, any historical perspective, the plan is working. Right. And I want to ask what, what happens when it does. So, you know, it's really important to engage in like empirical and other contest over what the real problem is. And as you say, at the end of the book, I try to be pr pretty clear that we're in the earliest days of this emergent phenomenon. But if we never ask what happens when we get our way as one kind of reformer, then we may find ourselves in a situation where we haven't thought about the you know, downsides and risks of the reforms we've chosen to pursue. And humane war, to me, is emergent but sinister in ways that I think at this point deserve some attention. Right. And I think that last point, those who read the book will, of course, get that. But I think in the, the sort of discourse about the book, that point sometimes gets lost. There, there seems to be the suggestion that Moyne is championing humane warfare, which, of course, is not the point of the book. Right. So we're, right. we'll come back to the, the consequences and the relationship at the end, because that's, of course, the, the, the whole enchilada, so to speak. But, but before we get there, the, the other primary premise of this 
argument is that somehow with the effort to humanize war, to, you know, borrowing Tolstoy's insight, there has been an undermining or at least some form of weakening of the efforts to constrain war. And we'll leave aside for a moment the nature of that relationship and whether it's causal, because yeah. that is at the center. But again, I think some might argue that the account of the development of Yusat Balam and the account of the apparent weakening of efforts to constrain war might have been exaggerated, or, you know, that there's an over-discounting of the normative power of Yusat Balam. And in particular, and looking at some of the examples that the opposition, both legal and political, to the, the invasion of Iraq, the legal opposition and debate around the killing of uh, Soleimani, the debate around, and, the, and indeed the operation of Yusad Balam effectively, at least at the outset, in the operations in Libya, all of this sort of perhaps gets excessively glossed over. Right. Well, so, so there's a baseline problem. You know, and that's what we're really arguing about. And are the transgressions important or is how far the baseline has shifted worth highlighting? So let me just um, review a few of those examples and actually start before the present era, because one of my aspirations in the book is to tell a story of the internationalists, those who brought peace to the world, allegedly, right. including Quincy Wright, whom you mentioned, that focuses on the price of what has really been a white piece in the transatlantic and that's and pax americana involved it, the piece that that european activists or transatlantic activists directly sought and and that meant not the end of war not the end of global war not the institutionalization of norms against great power war but in instead kind of uh, america's pivot beyond its hemispheric security zone to, you know, a history of intervention. And I'm very sympathetic to those who have thought about the emergence of kind of norms against cross-border force and stressed not the Kellogg-Briand Pact or the United Nations Charter, but those in, in, in the post-colonial world that tried to tried to strengthen the the baseline that we still have and in documents like the declaration on friendly relations and generally you know failed and so in a sense i'm just i'm trying to give them some historiographical love by pointing out that we achieved peace sort of not really and we achieved a regime for the control of force sort of but not really Okay, and then we get to these more present day examples. I think it's a huge achievement that there are things like Article 51 letters and, you know, there is a requirement to have your lawyers explain why you're compliant with the United Nations Charter. But as we all know, certain states like mine, <laughs> in principle, can't be branded aggressors in the international system. And so the, you know, to me, the it's really important to to look at the baseline where there are arguments, good faith or not, for compliance with the USAD Bellum, but also a, a continuing history of intervention, you know, and lawyering that looks permissive. So I agree that there were some people who even raised questions about the Afghan intervention. And I, in fact, I mm -hmm. cite a French article by one of your immediately prior guests. But right. that was drowned out for sure. Right. I focus very intently on the American debate 
around the Iraq war precisely because it was so easily drowned out relative, for example, to the not just the British debate at the time legally, but ongoing recriminations that have caught, you know, Tony Blair up in legal predicaments around the Iraq intervention. Right. And I totally agree that the Libyan intervention, at least in its initial initiation, was legal under international law. So I'm not saying every act by my country is aggressive. <laughs> I'm saying there's an ongoing tradition of great power war under Pax Americana. It's actually gotten worse. And I cite you know, pretty startling data about the number of interventions before and after 1989 by right. the United States. And it's massively more in our time. So that's what's happening in real life to the USAD Bellon regime. And I I'm not committed to being right on every point that right. everything's illegal, but I'm saying that's the, that's the picture. And it's the same era in which we've humanized war and focused on as a matter of activism and lawyering on doing so. So I imagine there must have been interesting debates in the Yale faculty lounge with Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro, who were arguing that the Kellogg Brand Pact changed everything. Well, I love Ona and Scott, and I, their book was, as you know, John Witt's book on the other side of right. this divide in the title of your podcast. These were you know, both complete inspirations. And I think something did happen. I don't have like a kind of a, a dog in the fight of whether it was the Kellogg-Briand Pact exactly, as opposed to the UN charter or nuclear weapons or whatever. But I am, I think it's right that there was normative change and certainly practical change in the middle of the 20th century. The reason I decided to write the chapter that's principally about Quincy Wright is to show that this was an internationalism that was put to the end of world peace, but in fact achieved white peace right. or transatlantic peace. And the only or one of the few reservations I have about Ona and Scott's great book is that it, it doesn't kind of capture that outcome. And at the end of the book tends to focus on other states, the kind of enemies states within the liberal internationalist imaginary, rather than staring in the face that liberal internationalism has been about unleashing great powers, especially the United States itself, to conduct war. And that seems as important a reality when it comes to the legal regulation of violence as any that we might consider. Yeah, no, I think the recurring theme in your book of looking at some of the, the interventions and the differentiated application and operation of both USAD Bellum and IHL through the racial lens is really both important and, and, and really interesting. But just to stay with the USAD Bellum issue for a moment, you know, the ICJ in Nicaragua made, makes this important insight that when countries try to justify their use of force by reference to the charter and other instruments, whether those justifications are persuasive or not, they in effect validate and legitimize and recognize the normative power of the legal regime itself. And 
with perhaps the exception of the Trump administration's strike on Syria, the United States has gone to great efforts to justify its interventions. Even the invasion of Iraq was extensively justified within, in legal terms. And so doesn't that actually suggest that you said Balam as a normative legal framework is really quite robust and operating quite well, even if there have been a lot of violations? And I guess the question is really, is it true that the constraints on the use of force, or at least the effort to constrain force, has somehow weakened as war has, or armed conflict has become more humane? So, you know, this is a really interesting line of questioning. And, you know, it might, you know, require me to kind of think on my feet about what I want my central claim to be. So just as a thought experiment, let's go back before 1945. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously, there are debates about whether there was any USAD Bellum before 1945 and what it was. But if I said that states in intervening at will cited the right of states to intervene at will, would that demonstrate that the law was being followed? Just the, you know, going through the motions of claiming the legal validity of the action? Well, in a sense, it would. And if all we're talking about after 1945 is, is that states make a public case that in many most cases that we're talking about that they're they've engaged in legal self-defense under the charter then you can make an argument that there's an extraordinary culture of compliance but well not compliance right it's not so much that there's compliance because we might argue that there have been a lot of violations right but i I guess part of there's lips a culture of lip service but the point i'm making is that you could see lip service all the way along in the history of international law insofar as states were claiming not just the justice but legality of their interventions it's just the rule what the rules are changed so if that i guess i'm saying if that's what we're talking about then i don't see much either novelty or to write home about and then there has to be a kind of independent judgment once we're in the un charter regime of well how much abuse is occurring in the midst of the lip service and, you, you know, I don't have a big stake in, in that argument in the sense that I'm not a legalist. Right. You know, I do talk throughout the book just kind of for the sake of argument about how much violation there was without many people caring on the USAD Bellum side compared to the obsession with the USAD Bellum side. But it does seem to me that at a certain point you have to say, what's the reality of this regime when all you're getting is lip service? when the president's lawyers essentially you know justify anything if this the soleimani strike is contested i think it's for you know the very kind of circumstantial reasons that you know governing elites in both parties have seen that those permission slips allow someone they hate donald trump to do the same thing they've been doing so i guess i i don't think the regime is that robust when it comes to the United States, because there's no check. There's there are in there's internal lawyering in which the yes men and women of the executive branch justify what the president wants to do, including in Trump's case. And then you get some some pushback on blogs. That seems to be the politics of Usad Bellum to in in, a, in the American case right. today, and it, it illustrates that it's not a serious regime for certain powers that have vetoes in the Security Council compared to others that that can get unpopular enough to be branded aggressors in the international system. 
And it's not what Quincy Wright wanted or other American internationalists, for sure. So I think this brings us to another sort of issue I wanted to explore, because I mean, you say that, well, the pushback on the use ad bellum was nothing compared to the obsession with torture and other excesses in violation of IHL principles. But that gets at this question of like, which forces and actors are we really talking about? Because I think it's not always clear in the discussion in the book whether you're arguing that the law of use ad bellum itself is losing normative power or even becoming more permissive, or is it the activists and the public are less focused and less concerned about the constraints on war? Or is it again that the government lawyers and policymakers are simply more inclined to ignore and subvert the legal constraints on the use of force? And is it really only just in the United States? Because I mean, just to take one example, you know, the Bush doctrine and this idea that the doctrine of self-defense could be reinterpreted to include and, and permit preventative self-defense was right. roundly rejected by the international community, right? And to True. the point where I think even in the United States has no longer, has not again tried to rely on that, right. even if aspects of that doctrine were used to distort and gut the concept of imminence more generally in self-defense. But so which actors and which forces are we really talking about when we're talking about the humanization of IHL on one side and the sort of emasculation of use ad bellum on the other? I think this is a totally fair question, uh, Craig, and it, and it illustrates either a weak point in the book or a vast research project that someone ought to do <laughs> that I didn't. So first, I don't want to commit to the claim that the United States was ever constrained by the use ad bellum regime. And um, I do think that there is a story to be told about incredibly creative lawyering. And I mentioned some of that, and we're all familiar if we care about those issues with the kinds of arguments that were made. It's also true that aside from a few references, I'm only looking at American debate. So what I want to do is illustrate change over time in, let's say, attention, the locus of attention. And that's for lawyers and you know, the public. So it's quite important to the kind of argument I want to make that after World War II, the, the United States was a big part of the prioritization of aggression as the gateway crime in the international system with atrocity following expectably from it rather than something to stigmatize exclusively or even independently. And I, I put a lot of effort into showing that in the Vietnam War, this understanding held activists, but also the international lawyers who've kind of engaged in kind of thinking about the what went wrong in the Vietnam War, what was going wrong. So that's one change. And it has to do with kind of how we think about the relation of these regimes or the kind of the relation of the underlying legal or moral wrongs to one another over time. And I put a lot of effort into showing in one of the chapters how there's a moral revolution in favor of concern about civilian harm, including retroactively in World War II when few cared at the time right. about the Japanese or the Jews. And that, that put pressure on this original understanding. But above all, I try to show that Partly out of necessity, activists and lawyers were driven after September 11th to focusing in, in one way rather than another. And that's caused a lot of emotional debate. You know, whether I'm right that that happened, whether there was an alternative, I actually don't think there was. And all I want to say is it had immense consequences that the Nuremberg prioritization was destroyed 
and that there was not just a prioritization of atrocity, torture, and later excess civilian death in war, but an exclusive concern with it. So who does that describe? Well, enough people. Right. Um, I, you know, I can't find a lot of counterexamples that are you know, of mainstream significance. And so it, to me, if we're not able to capture that mutation, I think we will have missed something of extraordinary importance. But I concede totally that this is a story partly for boring reasons of kind of narrative propulsion that focuses on selected individuals, how representative they are, what the, the kind of larger sociological realities are, I think remain difficult to prove and unproven. So that's why your question I think if it doesn't reveal a weakness in the book, certainly suggests that there's a lot more work to be done to establish its argument. Yeah. So, so I want to come back to that issue of picking certain individuals, you know, like Jack Goldsmith and John Yu and a right. number of other figures. And I think that's a really interesting question on the process and choices made in developing the book, which is we'll, hopefully we'll have some time to come back to because it was sort of reminiscent of a Michael Lewis approach to, to diving into you know, really complicated issues, but making it personal and engaging through the use of individuals. But before we get to that, I think we're sort of almost at the coal face of the big problem or the big question, which is there really this inverse relationship? Is there a zero sum game that's going on here? And aside from Tolstoy's insight, like what's the, yeah. the basis for this claim? And I, I think you've started to explain that in your last answer, sure. that at least sure. within the United States, it was really just a preoccupation at a number of different levels with humanizing or, or making armed conflict less brutal. Sort of lost sight of the bigger and in some sense more possible, depending on one's perspective, the more important issue of constraining the use of force generally and, and reducing the incidence of armed conflict. So how do we like I'm sure many, including myself, would like to control both, right? Put more right. constraints on both. I, mean, I'm, I do too. Right. And so most people would say, no, we can do both. We can have it all. But you're suggesting, no, you can't. If you focus on one, you're going to lose sight of the other and you're going to, you know, it, it's going to result in somehow a weakening of the constraints right. on the use of force. So let's talk about that inverse relationship. Sure. Right. So, okay. So just to be clear, I want to control both. Right. If there's war, including just and legal war, it ought to be humane in the sense of compliant with international humanitarian law. So the, the question is not whether we should want both, but how we get it. And here, I, I, I try to be as clear as possible within my limits that Tolstoy's argument is for a contingent risk of interference. And that means that depending on the circumstances, the, the risk isn't incurred or it's, it's not that significant, or that if it is, it can be controlled or managed. And that's the whole argument. So I also get from Tolstoy some causal pathways, as I, I don't think I call them in the book, but it's how I think about them in law school speak, about how the risk can be incurred without undertaking as an empirical legal scholar would to prove it in some, with whatever means, you know, honestly, because I don't think it can be proved. I think very little can be proved. And I have much less confidence about that than people who have data and run regressions. So the, the Tolstoy argument is that there can be for reformers a compromise, and he illustrates it through the analogy of humane slavery, right. that you can forbear from challenging the practice and collude with your enemies 
in humanizing their violence. And the, the claim is that's what happens with humanitarians after Vietnam. And then there's his other argument, which I, I think is not about the advocates compromise, but what I call the audience's bad faith. And it's that, it, and he develops this also through an analogy with non-human animal slaughter. And the argument there is, if Barack Obama tells us that the slaughter done in, in our name or for our sake is ethical, we think we're good people and don't kind of face up to the realities of our ongoing wrongdoing. And that could be just a moral error, but it could have a causal effect. So, you know, all I want to do is raise the plausibility of this by showing first that there really has been a lot of wrongdoing on the USAD Bellum side with much less attention from lawyers and the public, especially the public, compared to the concern with the conduct of hostilities and that Obama played on how Bush's war was delegitimated in order to relegitimate a new form of the war on terror, which it's hard to understand why he would have done in those terms absent its power for a crucial audience to give the war on terror a new lease on life. But beyond this, I, I don't know how one would make the case or frankly, how one would make any case, which if you don't believe in the various poli-sci methods that are in fashion in our time, it, it just seems like it's very hard to do beyond making it credible that this might be happening. Interesting. So somewhat related to the question of this, you know, is there in fact an inverse relationship? It struck me when I was reading the book that you don't really get into either an exploration of or an explanation of for, for the readers who, who may not be steeped in the two uh, legal regimes, the legal relationship between use ad bellum and use in bello, right? And the importance of the fact that they are both related and yet independent, particularly the important choice that was made, conscious choice that was made, that use in bello had to be independent of determinations of violation of use ad bellum. Right. And indeed, at some point in the book, I mean, you, you don't argue this, but there seems to be almost the implication that organizations like Human Rights Watch seem to be taking a strange position in that they are neutral on the legitimacy or validity of either side of, of an armed conflict, but really just focus on highlighting and challenging violations of IHL. And yet that would be entirely consistent with an understanding of the relationship of use ad bellum and use in bellum. So how do you or do you see any relationship between the legal relationship between those two regimes and this argument that somehow there's this inverse relationship in our focus and, and that by focusing on trying to comply more with one of these regimes, we're going to lose sight of and end up not complying with or undermining the normative power of the other regime? So, you know, I reference early that there's this partly mythified distinction between these two domains legally. And of course, we all learn that there's a rationale for this, namely that we want even illegal wars to be fought legally. And the, the I guess the premise is that keeping these domains separate, the initiation of war on the one hand, and the conduct of it once it's begun on the other, we can focus our attention sequentially on different problems. I don't think it follows as you've kind of, I think suggested that groups would then exist that let's say divide labor 
since it strikes me as very important that we've never had a kind of balanced advocacy. Actually, the reverse, I, I would argue, I don't in the book, but that during the long period in which you saw Bellum advocacy by far predominated, there weren't groups that were monitoring use and bellow violations, but it was very fateful that there was this reversal. And now we have lots and lots of groups, Human Rights Watch in the kind of pioneering role. So I narrate how it came to play that role in monitoring the use and bellow within, in the era of the collapse of, of peace movements. So I guess, you know, it's not revolutionary in their prior, you know, works of scholarship that ask, well, notwithstanding the separation, how do they interact in practice? I'm, I, it's absolutely true that I'm trying to make an original case, you know, in a tradition of others who've kind of worried about this from Tolstoy to David Kennedy, that the separation of these regimes, which may be justified philosophically or on other grounds doesn't mean they can't affect each other. And I, I don't really have a strong commitment. I'm, again, I'm not a legalist, so I don't have a legal agenda in this book. I'm not trying you know, to motivate a skepticism about the very distinction between the concepts and your you know, podcast title. But <laughs> all I do care about is to say, in an age in which we've had lived through this reversal, and we have weakening use ad bellum concern and spiking use in bellow concern, there can be risks incurred right. of the emergence of humane endless war. And what would the response be? Well, one would be, let's write the balance. There's little historical basis for doing so, as I've suggested. But that doesn't mean it's not possible to walk and chew gum at the same time. We could only do so if we really thought through, well, why was there so lopsided an attention to Yusad Bellum? And why did it reverse in our time? Because it seems like our ancestors indeed couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. So it's not as easy as it may seem. So let's actually dig into that a little bit more because at the very end of the book in the epilogue, and indeed you foreshadow this in the prologue or the introduction, you know, you sort of suggest that the humanization of war could lead actually to some dystopian future in which we lose our freedom, not to war as it's traditionally understood, but to some excessive control through the threat of violence, but not through the actual uh, execution of violence. But at the outset, the book seemed to set out to claim that we are not doing enough to constrain war itself. In other words, not doing enough to develop the Yusad Bellum regime in international law or the war powers provisions in constitutions uh, in domestic law. So what of that? So what should we take away from your book? How should we be doing more to bolster Yusad Balam or war powers provisions in constitutions? Well, so there, there absolutely is, and maybe as a priority, a concern about like the boring matter of ongoing cross-border military violence. As we stand poised to a, a war in Ukraine. Absolutely. So that, insofar as that happens, it, we should care about it. And Again, I'm not trying to trivialize it, including the excesses right. of it in the slightest. And if there's something emergent, it doesn't mean that something age old isn't even expanding, let alone enduring. So, it, 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 you know, absolutely, I would love to see enlivened war powers debate. And we've seen it in response to Trump and the early period of the Biden administration involved congressional hearings and so forth. And I think there, there is a period that we're entering of more 
concern about the USAD Bellum, except that there are these threats allegedly of China and for in, you know, for real Russia that may lead you know, to a lot of justification of force and countermeasures uh, and so forth in response to uh, violation. And I don't at all want to distract from that, but I, I do want to say that if we're standing back, the era of the war on terror has revealed something new and it could remain peripheral. It could become of extraordinary significance as time passes. I would note that, you know, the UN Charter forbids not just force, but the threat of force. Right. And those same anti-colonialists whose banner I'm trying to rally around did try to define that in the broadest sense, not very successfully. But the way I conclude the book is by saying, look at these agendas of, you know, inventing a, a duty to capture rather than kill within international humanitarian law or to co-apply international humanitarian law with international human rights law, which seemed for a while to be the kind of most visionary reformist agendas in the face of the war on terror, but seem consistent with this syndrome of accepting unending hierarchy in world affairs in which some people get to police others. And the fact that it's less violent or even nonviolent doesn't make it right. And I, I think that's a, a, an emergent concern. It's not an emergent concern on the streets of our cities where we see, you know, bloodshed and then have to have a debate about whether we have humane policing or less policing over our fellow citizens. Right. But it ought to be a debate about which one we choose over our fellow humans on a global scale. So it's true that I'm not guaranteeing this will become more and more defining of war, but nonviolent policing is emergent as something that great powers have learned to do, including through other techniques that I focus on, like surveillance. And whether we tolerate that, I think will say a lot about us in the eyes of our children and grandchildren and beyond. Right. So I guess one last question. You don't tackle head on the responsibility of lawyers. But it's a theme that runs through the book, right? And you're, you're quite critical yeah. of some of the lawyers who uh, are engaged in the drafting of what you call permission slips uh, and OLC memos and, and the like. And, you know, Ona Hathaway, when she was on the podcast, talked quite a bit about this, the, the responsibility of government lawyers. And your work in this book really illustrates the way that, as you call it, creative lawyering can really, over time, undermine the normative power of certain legal regimes. And what, and I know this isn't something that you tackle in the book, but, and I'm putting you on the spot, but in terms of thinking about trying to return some attention to the normative power of the USAID Bellum regime, war powers provisions, what responsibility do lawyers have, and particularly those who go into government and cycle in and out of government from the academy, what responsibility do you say they have to not use law in this instrumental fashion, but to be more faithful to the rule of law itself? Well, it's a really important question. It, it, I think it raged at the dawn of the Trump administration when it, it was unclear whether lawyers should in good faith serve in hopes of, you know, even if they disagreed with policies, they might be able to blunt their effects on certain victims or 
I guess, control the damage to the rule of law. But of course, there, there have to be times when we say it's, it is a moral error to work within the, the belly of the beast in order you know, to hope that it, it makes some difference, however minor. I'm not involved in that debate. I've never worked in government aside from a very brief stint when I was very young as an intern. And it's because I guess I'm skeptical. That's where we should look for the moral control of politics. From what I can see, lawyers are yes men and women, and they haven't stood up to power in any of these domains. The real regimes we look to for constraint are elsewhere than in relying on the conscience of people within the belly of the beast. Uh, so, you know, an example of this would be the separation of powers. But I think we also rely on public opinion and advocacy to affect public opinion, which is the biggest constraint on the powerful. What we don't have, I think, is a, a kind of global version of that so that the debate around what Americans do as the greatest armed you know, power of all time is within a pretty small number of people, most of them American. And I think that's you know sad, but it doesn't mean that we should glamorize lawyers for improving the world when in fact, most of the time, they're servants of power. And so I, I guess, I think it's a really important debate for others to have, but I don't want to be part of it. All right. Well, on that note, I think I've taken more time than I asked for. So Sam, thank you so much. This was really fascinating. And thanks for a wonderful book. For those who haven't yet read it, I encourage them all to run out and get it. It's a, an incredibly rich read. And even if you disagree with parts of it here and there, it's a wonderful book. But before I let you leave, I'm going to ask you to, of course, recommend three other things for our listeners to read. Sure. You know, I've gotten so much out of, of prior recommendations and it's a privilege to offer a couple of my own. So in, in the first place, I've been inspired in this book by the extraordinary essays of the Australian legal historian, Amanda Alexander, who I think saw a lot about the history of international humanitarian law that in some respects, I'm just trying to elevate and narrate. And so I'll begin with her essay, A Short History of International Humanitarian Law in the European Journal of International Law in 2015. And then I'll cite, since you know this discussion has been about history, two, two recent books that are about the 20th century and some of the major you know, acts of lawmaking and how to think about them. The first is, of course, Boyd Van Dyke's book, Hot Off the Press, Preparing for War, The Making of the Geneva Conventions, that's literally published in the past month or, you know, a few weeks. And it is, it's an excellent diplomatic history that I cite in my book, but right. I only scratch the surface of his findings for my purposes, and I think deserves a lot of attention. Comparably, Giovanni Mantia's Lawmaking Under Pressure, International Humanitarian Law and Internal Armed Conflict is also very good. And I think it approaches the, this, essentially the same topic from the perspective of international relations theory, but it's heavily empirical and it doesn't just look as Boyd does at 1949, but also extends the story through the 1970s. And there's an enormous amount to learn from Giovanni's work as well. 
Well, thank you. And spoiler alert, both of those are on our, our radar. So tune in down the road, folks. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for, for making time for this and for sharing your thoughts and, and again, for a wonderful book. Thanks. It's a great honor. And good luck in the Himalayas. Okay. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. And as I said at the outset, there's now a PayPal button on the website for those who might like to make a small donation to help with the editing costs, which I will say start to add up. And you can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at JibJabPodcast for updates on the upcoming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.